glory forever. Amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, welcome to our church. I'm so glad that you're here. Or maybe it's the first time in a long time. Um, If that's the case, welcome home. I'm so glad you're back. Well, we're in a sermon series through the book of Galatians, which we're calling Getting the Gospel Right. And the goal of this series is for us as a church family to get the gospel right because it's so easy for us to confuse and distort and even functionally forget the gospel as we live our very full and busy lives right here in Northern Virginia. And when we do that, when we distort the gospel, when we forget the gospel, it robs us of our joy, our assurance, our peace, our freedom, and the power to produce the beautiful fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You know, when we distort or forget the gospel, it will either lead us to to pride because we'll begin to boast in our goodness, boast in our obedience to God, or it will lead us to to, to fear as we despair over our disobedience or our, our sins that we seem to never be able to master. But it's only when we keep the gospel first and foremost and central in our minds and in our hearts that we'll be able to live this life with both humility and boldness. It's in that freedom of the gospel that we'll begin to bear the beautiful fruit of the Spirit in our lives for the good of our neighbors, for the joy of our hearts, all to the glory of God. And that all begins with getting the gospel right. So here's the title of my sermon for today. It's simply... Those who are of faith are blessed. Those who are of faith are blessed. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 14. People of God, this is the word of our God. Would you give it your careful attention? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of, a- uh, of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, here's the outline of my sermon today. Three points. First, the foolishness of the Galatians. Second, the example of Abraham. And third, the blessing of Abraham. Let's begin with the foolishness of the Galatians. And in verse 1, the Apostle Paul called the Galatian Christians foolish. Uh, J.B. Phillips translated this verse in this way, and he writes, O oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. So what did the Galatian Christians do that was so foolish and so idiotic? Well, simply, they had begun to yield to the Judaizers and to their distorted gospel. Foolishly and idiotically, even though they had believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation, they began to get circumcised. And they began to obey the law of Moses, particularly the law of Moses regarding food you can eat and clothes you can wear, as if they needed to do those things in order to be saved, as if faith in Jesus was not enough. You see, the Galatian Christians had already begun the Christian life by hearing and believing in Jesus Christ, the crucified one. But now, because of the Judaizers and their false gospel, they began to believe that they had to finish or perfect or or complete their salvation by obeying the law, as if faith in Jesus was not enough. And that was idiotic foolishness to think that faith in Jesus is not enough to save you. And that was the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter in the first place to the Galatians to rebuke them for listening to and following the Judaizers and to correct their understanding of the gospel which had become distorted and corrupted uh, because of the Judaizers. The Galatian Christians had heard and they believed the gospel. Verse 1 says... It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, obviously, they did not see with their physical eyes Jesus hanging on a cross. Uh, But through the preaching of the gospel, through the message that declared that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was put to death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for sinners... Through that message, in their mind's eye, they were able to see Jesus crucified. And they believed in the crucified Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. You know, when the gospel is faithfully preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't just hear about Jesus dying on a cross. In your mind's eye you begin to see Jesus hanging and dying on a cross. And you see him dying for you. But there's a world of difference between saying, I believe that Jesus died for sinners. Theologically, biblically true statement. It's one thing to say, I believe that Jesus died for sinners. It's another thing altogether to say, I believe that Jesus died for me. 
a sinner. That's when it becomes real and personal. You see, when um, in your mind's eye you see Jesus and hanging and dying on the cross for you and for your salvation, that's when you will begin to see the greatness of his love for you. When the death of Jesus becomes personal to you, that's when the love of Jesus will become personal to you as well. You know, it's interesting in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul did not say, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves sinners and who died for sinners. He didn't say that, even though that's true. What did he say? He personalized it. He said, I live uh, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let me ask you today, church family, is the death of Jesus on the cross personal to you? When you see Jesus dying on the cross in your mind's eye, do you see him dying for sinners generally, or do you see him dying for you specifically? You see, it's when you see Jesus dying for you that you'll begin to understand how high and how wide and how deep his love is for you, particularly, specifically, by name. The Galatian Christians believed in this crucified Christ. And through their faith in the crucified Christ, they were justified and they received the Holy Spirit. They did not have to get circumcised. They did not have to obey the law in order to be justified and to receive the Spirit. They received all of that by faith in Jesus Christ. But having begun by faith in Jesus, it was now idiotic and foolish to try and to finish their salvation by the flesh by trying to obey the law. Now, in order for us to get the gospel right, we need to be able to discern the difference between the law and the gospel. We cannot confuse the two. We cannot mix the two. We must keep the law and the gospel separate and distinct. Uh, Dr. Mike, uh, Mike Horton was one of my seminary professors, and he used to talk about how, how common it was for Christians to mix and to confuse the law and gospel together. And, and he used to call that, the Christians used to believe what he used to call the gospel, right? You see, when you add the law to the gospel, when you mix the law and the gospel, you get this monstrous hybrid. You see, you not only pollute and corrupt the gospel, but you ultimately end up losing the gospel. You end up with a gospel, which is no gospel at all. So what is the difference between the law and the gospel? Now, for some of you, this, what I'm going to tell you is review. It's great to review the basics of the gospel. But for some of you, if you've never understood the difference, if you get the difference, it can change your life. It'll radically revolutionize your life and your relationship with God. So what's the difference between the law and the gospel? The law says... Do this and live. But the gospel says, Christ has done it all, therefore you will live. The law says, or the law requires perfect obedience. But the gospel requires faith in Christ's perfect obedience for you. The law says, do good works and earn your salvation. But the gospel says, 
believe in Christ's good works for your salvation. The law makes demands and calls us to obey, but the gospel brings promises and calls us to believe. You see, the law and the gospel are contrary to one another. They are not two sides of the same coin. You see, there are are only two ways to be saved. The first way is obeying the law of God perfectly and perpetually. The other way is by believing in Jesus Christ. There is no third way where you mix the two together. It's either by perfect and perpetual obedience to the law or it's faith in the one who did offer perfect and perpetual obedience to the law. Those are the only two ways to be saved. You see, the gospel is a distorted gospel. It's a false gospel. It's not a true gospel. And yet, it is so easy for us as Christians to think that we begin the Christian life by believing in the gospel, but then we progress and mature in the Christian life by obeying the law, by leaving the gospel behind and moving on to the law. Uh, Pastor Dick Kaufman, one of my gospel heroes and one of my mentors, recently passed away. He said this, Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of life. But we are not just saved by the gospel, we grow by applying the gospel to every area of life. And as the late Pastor Tim Keller used to say, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A through Z of the Christian life. You know what that means? It means that you don't just start with the gospel, you continue with the gospel, and then you finish with the gospel. You see, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. We only grow deeper into the gospel. We never move on from the gospel. We only move further into and deeper and further into the gospel. You see, we're not just justified by faith in Christ, but we're also sanctified by faith in Christ. We begin the Christian life by believing the gospel, and we mature and we grow in the Christian life by believing the gospel even more deeply as we seek to walk in step with the truth of the gospel in all areas of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is so important. A lot of Christians think that spiritual maturity is about going to church every week, reading your Bible every day, praying, serving. All of those are good things. But do you realize you can do all of those things and more and still be very immature spiritually? In fact, you can still be unconverted. You're just religious. True spiritual maturity happens when the truth, power, and the beauty of the gospel begins to renew and reshape and to reform and to remold our minds, our hearts, and our conduct so that we become more and more conformed into the beautiful likeness of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. You know, when the gospel renews our minds, we begin to have the mind of Jesus. And we begin to discern what is right and wrong, what is true and false, what is good and evil, according to the will of Jesus, which is revealed in his word. 
And when the gospel renews our hearts, we begin to speak and act and behave in ways that honor and, and please Jesus in ways, uh, uh, and, and Jesus' priorities become our priorities. And when the gospel renews our conduct, we begin to, to speak and to act and to behave in ways that honor and please Jesus, in ways that love and serve our neighbors for their well-being and their flourishing, all to the glory of God. As Christians, we never move on from the gospel to something else. There is no something else that you graduate into. You just go deeper and further into the gospel. And what sanctification really is, is thinking through all the implications of the gospel for every area of your life. What you do in your marriage. What you do with your money. What you do with your body. How you do your work how you do relationships, how you do parenting, how you are to your parents. The gospel has implications for every area of your life. That's how the gospel transforms us when the implications of the gospel are worked out in your life. So first, it was foolish of the Galatian Christians to think that they started by believing the gospel and then they had to finish their salvation by their obedience to the law. Second, Let's consider now the example of Abraham, which will prove Paul's point. In verse 6, Abraham referred, uh, Paul referred to Abraham, and this was a brilliant move by, by Paul. Why? The Judaizers looked to Moses as their champion. And Paul does one better. He says, you know what? You don't go back far enough. I'm going to go back further still. I'm going to go all the way back to Father Abraham himself. And I'm going to show you by his life that justification is by faith alone apart from the works of the law. So how does he do that? In verse 6, Paul wrote, just as Abraham believed, in, uh, believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. To be counted righteous is just another way of saying uh, being justified. So Abraham believed God, and he was justified. Now this quote is from Genesis chapter 15, and let me give you a little bit of context. So Abraham and his wife Sarah were very old, and they were childless, and his wife Sarah was beyond the years of childbearing. It was biologically impossible for her to have a child. But God took Abraham outside one night, and he told him to look up into the heavens and to count all the stars if he could. Impossible, right? Too many stars. And then God promised that Abraham would have so many descendants, it'd be, it would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, God justified Abraham because Abraham believed God. So here's what happened, just to make sure we get the order straight, right? First, God makes this incredible promise to Abraham. This promise that is biologically impossible from a human perspective. And yet, secondly, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that God was faithful and able to keep his promise, no matter how impossible it seemed from a human perspective. And third, Abraham's faith 
was counted to him as righteousness. Because of Abraham's faith in God's promise, Abraham was justified. He was accepted as righteous by God. And here's the crucial important detail as to why Paul brought up Abraham in the first place. Abraham was justified while he was uncircumcised. God did not tell Abraham to get circumcised until two chapters later in Genesis chapter 17. What that means is Abraham was justified by faith even while he was uncircumcised. And to go further, Abraham was not saved or justified by his obedience to the law of Moses. Do you know why? Moses wasn't born yet. The law of Moses wasn't there yet. Abraham, uncircumcised, didn't obey the law of Moses, and yet God says he is justified. And so Abraham is the classic example that a person is justified by faith in God's promise apart from the works of the law. Now, it's interesting uh, that Abraham was justified by faith, meaning that God declared him righteous, but God didn't actually make him righteous, did he? Abraham was still a sinner, still capable of very sinful, selfish, and stupid things. For example, in Genesis chapter 20, five chapters later, what does Abraham do? He lies about his wife, Sarah, because she's so beautiful, says, oh, she's my sister, and he allows her to become the wife of another man in order to protect himself. Cowardly, weaselly, sinful, shameful thing. Abraham was capable of doing some very awful things, even though he was still declared righteous by God. He was, he was justified. Here's the point. The gospel says that we are justified, that we're declared by God to be righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that we have actually become perfectly righteous yet. We're still sinners. We still sin. We're still capable of doing dumb things, aren't we? Martin Luther famously said that Christians are simultaneously righteous and sinful. The gospel says that we are loved and accepted by God as righteous in Christ. And yet, at the same time, we still sin. You see, for until Jesus brings us home, until, um, for as long as we live in these fallen bodies, in this fallen world, both realities are true at the same time. You are both, at the same time, righteous and perfect in the sight of God in Christ, and also at the same time, sinful. And that's why we as Christians, even though we know we're righteous in Christ, we're capable of sinning, aren't we? And we can do some very sinful, shameful, and selfish things. We're all capable of that. You and I, we all are. Verse 7 says that the true sons of Abraham are those who believe like Abraham. What matters is not physical descent from Father Abraham. What matters is not biological, like lineage by blood to Abraham. What matters is 
the spiritual descent from Abraham. What matters is having the same faith that Abraham had. You see, the true children of Abraham are the spiritual children of Abraham, and the spiritual children of Abraham are those who believed like Abraham. Verse 9 says, I love this verse. It's where our sermon title comes from. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what does it mean to believe like Abraham? What does it mean to have the faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had? I want you to notice this. Abraham did not merely believe in God. He didn't just believe that God existed. Of course he did. But Abraham believed God. That means he believed that God was faithful and able to keep each and every promise he would ever make. And so for us, to, to, to have the faith of Abraham means that we believe that God will keep and fulfill all of his promises. So what does having the faith, faith of Abraham look like for us on this side of the coming of Christ? It looks like this. There's a past, present, and future aspect to this. Okay, listen very carefully. This is really, really important. On this side of the coming of Christ, to have the faith of Abraham consists of doing three things. First, we believe that God has kept his promises when he sent his son Jesus to rescue the world as the savior of the world through his death, life, death, and resurrection. So that's the first part. You believe that God has kept his promises. Second, you believe that God is right now currently keeping his promises as the risen Lord Jesus Christ sovereignly rules over the world and he's building up his spiritual kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and as he's redeeming people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So right now, this very hour, as the gospel is being preached, as people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, as they're entering into the kingdom of God, as they're becoming a part of the church, God is keeping his promises right now. And third... We believe that God will keep his promises one day when the risen Lord Jesus comes again to restore and to renew this fallen and broken world into the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day, there will be no more sin, no more suffering. No more wars, no more killing, no more being killed, no more injustice, no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain, and no more death. One day, God will keep that promise when Jesus comes again. You see, to have faith like Abraham means far more than believing that God exists. Do you realize the devils and the demons believe that God exists. It's not a very high bar that you believe that God exists. To have the faith of Abraham means that you believe that God has kept, that God is keeping, and that God will keep each and every one of his promises. To believe like Abraham means that you believe that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, that God had the Gentiles in mind from the very beginning. That God was always planning to justify the Gentiles by faith. It's a great verse. God promised that in Abraham all the nations shall be blessed. 
and that the blessing of Abraham would not just be for the Jews, but it would be for the whole world, including Gentiles like you and me. So the example of Abraham shows that justification and salvation are by faith in God's promises and not by obedience to the law. Third and lastly, let's look at the blessing of Abraham. Verse 8 says that the blessing of Abraham is for all the nations, for Jews and Gentiles. And it's called the blessing of Abraham because first, it was the blessing that Abraham himself received. But it's also called the blessing of Abraham because it's also the blessing that's given to those who believe like Abraham to the sons and daughters of Abraham. As verse 9 says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what is this blessing of Abraham that everyone and anyone can receive by believing in Jesus Christ? Our text will show us, shows us that the blessing of Abraham is a threefold blessing. It promises three things, justification, eternal life, and the Holy Spirit. Let's look at those individually quickly. First, we receive the blessing of justification. Justification is referred to in verses 6, 8, and 11. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. It means to be accepted by God. Let me put it another way. It means to have the smile of God. It means to have the favor of God. You know, as human beings, we have a natural, innate desire uh, for the acceptance and smile and um, favor of other humans, right? Whether it's our friends, our peers, our colleagues, our bosses, our spouses, our children, we want the acceptance and the smile and the favor of people that we're in relationship with. Similarly, even though we're naturally at enmity with God, there is still something in us as image bearers of God where we long for the acceptance and the smile and the favor of God. And when we receive the blessing of justification, that's exactly what we get. The smile of God, the favor of God, the acceptance of God. Second, we receive the blessing of eternal life. In verse 11, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. There's another translation that puts it this way. By faith, the righteous shall gain life. What life is this referring to? It's not physical and biological life in this world. It's referring to spiritual and eternal life in the world to come. Those who are righteous by faith shall gain eternal life. And what is eternal life? Eternal life is not just living forever. Jesus defined eternal life in this way. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To have eternal life means to know God in a deep and personal way and to have soul-satisfying fellowship and communion with God. That's eternal life. And third, we receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referred to in verses 2, 3, 5, and 14. 
To receive the Holy Spirit means to be born again. It means to have the Holy Spirit come into your life and to dwell inside you. And for the power of the Holy Spirit to be unleashed in your life, to comfort you, to guide you, to sanctify you, to, to make you bear the, his fruit in your life, and to mold you and to conform you into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. It means that the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed in your life to beautify you and to adorn you and to make you more like Christ. This is the threefold blessing of Abraham that is received by anyone and everyone who simply believes in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be good to receive this blessing. You don't have to do anything to receive this blessing. All you have to do is believe. Believe. Trust. Have faith. Now, even though we um, receive this amazing blessing by faith in Christ, but we all know that we do not deserve this blessing. In fact, what we deserve for our sins is the curse of God. Verse 10 says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. None of us have done all that is required by the law. None of us have kept the law of God perfectly and perpetually. Every single one of us have broken the law of God countless times with our thoughts, words, and deeds. We all sin so much, you cannot count them. It is uncountable how many times you sin. Some of us more than others, but all of us countless, right? So what we deserve for our countless sins is the curse of God. And yet we get the blessing of God instead. How is this possible? Well, verse 13 shows us how this is possible. I love this verse. Beautiful gospel summary in one verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Under the law of Moses, if you were sentenced to death, you would usually be executed by stoning. And then they would take your dead body and hang it on a tree. And hanging on a tree was a public sign and symbol that you didn't just die, but you died under the curse and rejection of God. To be nailed to a cross was the same thing as being hanged on a tree. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross... He didn't just die. He died under the curse and rejection of God. That's why it was so hard for the Jews to believe that Jesus could be the Messiah. For what Messiah could die under the curse and rejection of God? You see, the death of Jesus on the cross was an insurmountable obstacle of faith for the Jews until they came to see that Jesus bore the curse and the rejection for them. And when Jews saw that, it broke them and it melted their hearts and it turned them into rabid worshipers on the spot. The blessing of Abraham is free for us as we receive it by faith, but it costs Jesus everything to purchase it. Yes, we are justified, but only because Jesus was condemned on the cross for us. Yes, we have fellowship and communion with God, but only because Christ was 
forsaken and cut off from God on the cross for us. Yes, uh, we, have, uh, we've been ble- we have the smile of God, but only because Jesus received the wrath of God on the cross for us. Yes, we have been blessed with salvation, but only because Christ was cursed with judgment on the cross for us. The blessing of Abraham is free for us, but only because it cost Jesus everything. Christ Central family today, would you look upon Jesus on the cross? Would you see him in your mind's eye? And would you see how much he loves you? Would you see how high and how wide and how deep his love is for you that he would give himself for you? So what? Let me conclude my sermon with this one thought. If there's one thing I want you to do today, walking away from listening to the sermon, it's simply this. Today, I want you to believe. I want you to believe in Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified for you. Today, I want you to believe in the one who became a curse for you to redeem you from the curse of the law. Today, in your mind's eye, I want you to see Jesus dying and hanging on a cross for you. I want you to see Jesus taking the, cross, uh, the curse for you on the cross. Today, I want you to see how much Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life for you. Do you know that no one ever has or ever will love you like Jesus? The love of your parents may be great. The love of your husband or your wife may be wonderful. The love of your best friend might be reliable. But all of those loves cannot compare to the love of Jesus for you. No one has ever given their lives for you. But Jesus has. He demonstrated, showed, and proved his steadfast love for you when he gave his life for you. And today, as you see Jesus hanging on the cross in your mind's eye, as you see him, would you believe in him? Would you trust him to be your savior? Today, would you believe in Jesus Christ, the one who was cursed and crucified for you so that you might receive the blessing of Abraham, so that you might receive justification, eternal life, and the Holy Spirit? Today, maybe it's for the first time. Maybe it's for the first time in a long time. Maybe it's for the thousandth time. It doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Today, Today, right now, would you believe in Jesus Christ again? As the scriptures say, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Christ Central family, I love you with all of my heart. And because I love you as your pastor, the one thing I want most for you is this, that you would believe in Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified for you so that you might receive the blessing of Abraham. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, 
you demonstrated your love for us when you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross for us in our place, for our sins, so that we might be saved. He was condemned so that we might not be. He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. And as we behold with our mind's eye your son hanging on that cross for us, help us now to see and to believe how beloved we are to him, that he would give himself for us. Oh, thank you, Father, for this beautiful and precious gospel that we get to believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.